words like wilderness can feel very unwelcoming to a lot of people, I think, and they historically have been used as a means of colonial action. And by separating wilderness from humans, I think it can be very dangerous. And so the idea of a return to nature, it implies that it's a place that's always belonged to you, like you're returning to it, you're not exploring it for the first time. So I think in that sense, it can sort of subtly just get at the fact that like, anyone can have these really rich experiences. And if you want to call it nature, or the outdoors or outside, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be like a grand Yellowstone vacation. Like, I think my real intention with the book was just to help people explore whatever landscape that they have access to and really make it their own and and feel that more reciprocal connection to it. Welcome to the Our Nature podcast with me, Alyssa Benjamin. Our Nature explores the methods, systems, and practices that bring us into greater alignment with the natural world. The opportunity to live a more joyful and harmonious existence is available to each of us right in this very moment. So join me, and let's rediscover what comes naturally. Welcome back to another episode of the Our Nature podcast. If you're new here, this podcast is not a wellness podcast, but a podcast on how to be well in the biggest sense of the word, in the most communal sense. On the show, we have conversations with experts and inspiring individuals from a variety of fields and backgrounds about how each of us can build a deeper intimacy with natural spaces all around us so that we can build deeper intimacy with our inner nature or our essence. I'm going to keep this intro short because... I just released a very personal episode, had a little bit of a vulnerability hangover prior to this one about what it was like to pause this podcast and many aspects of my business for almost about a year. In that episode, I also talked about the diagnosis that I received that changed everything for me, the career opportunity that came out of nowhere and surprised me, and the many lessons, so many lessons I've learned throughout this period of prolonged hibernation. David, my partner, is the one who interviews me for the episode, which was pretty funny, I have to say, but also really fun. And so if you're interested in listening to that episode, I will link to it in the show notes of this episode. For today's episode, I'm chatting with writer, editor, and environmentalist Emma Lowy about her book, Return to Nature, The New Science of How Natural Landscapes Restore Us. Return to Nature is a guidebook. And it draws on this science and ancient wisdom of why building deeper relationships with nature makes us healthier in our body, in our mind, in our spirit. Emma is Mind Body Green's senior sustainability editor, and she's the co-author of The Spirit Almanac. She received her BA in environmental science and policy with a specialty in environmental communications from Duke University. And her work has been featured in Bloomberg News, Forbes, and Marie Claire, among many others. In this conversation, we discuss what Emma's relationship was like to nature as a child, what inspired her to write Return to Nature, the unique way this guidebook is organized, an overview and a practice for each of the eight landscapes that are featured in this book, how Each of us can have a powerful nature experience, even in the most urban environments. How writing this book transformed Emma's relationship to the more than human world, aka the natural world. And of course, the last five questions, which are the questions I ask every one of my guests. This interview was actually recorded last May, so I'm super thrilled to finally release it for all of you to enjoy. If you're interested in the science behind what makes our relationship with 
the natural world, the living world, so important and essential. I think you'll love this book and hopefully this conversation. So let's get into it. Welcome to my interview with the ever curious and thoughtful Emma Lowy. wanted to welcome you to the Our Nature podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you. This is actually one of the first interviews I've had in a while. I took a break from recording some interviews, so it feels really energizing to get back into it and to be speaking with you, especially one, because I think we revolve in some of the same circles. And I do, even though, you know, we did connect recently, I feel like this is maybe a long time coming. So it feels really nice. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Alyssa. I'm excited to be here as a fan of your podcast going into it too. Yes. I love that. I always start each episode by asking the same question. And it's such a relevant question, I think, especially for our conversation, because you mention in your, you have this book, Return to Nature, which I have right here, which is super wonderful. And the question I always ask at the beginning of each episode is, what was your relationship like to nature, the natural world, the earth, however you want to describe it as a child? And I think it's so poignant, especially for our conversation, because in reading parts of your book, it seems like that was the frame for like your inquiry and your curiosity around this. It's it's called Return to Nature, but in some ways I feel like I was reading it and maybe reading between the lines, but you also mentioned it of like returning to like that feeling that you got of being amongst like the trees and being in childhood. So I would love to hear that in your own words. Absolutely. So, you know, it's a great question and it's always an interesting one to consider, you know, sort of the formative experiences that we've had in nature throughout our lives. I personally grew up on the coast of Connecticut. So I, you know, always spent a lot of time at the beach. I've always really loved the water. So really felt a deep sort of belonging, you know, in coastal landscapes. But it's funny because the first page of my book, it starts with a childhood experience, which is growing up, my childhood bedroom had a view of a really beautiful maple tree. and it's so funny, like a lot of memories I have from growing up are very, I don't have the best memory, I'll be honest. So a lot of my memories are very foggy. But I have a very specific memory of just going to bed and waking up in the, you know, going to bed at night and waking up in the, in the morning and seeing that tree. And I think it was just sort of a through line throughout my childhood. And, you know, into my teen years, it felt like a very comforting almost, I think I describe it as a third parent, you know, it was just this force that was always there for me. And I wasn't even necessarily a super outdoorsy kid, but just being indoors and having that view of the tree, for whatever reason, was just incredibly comforting. So I think that was formative in one way or another. I think it's hard to disentangle exactly what those things do to you, but it was definitely an important piece of my childhood. Mm-hmm. Mm. I think we all must have a special tree if if we just take a moment and remember what that was. I bet we could all recall our special tree friend that we had when we were younger. I love that. I love that it started with a tree rather than a landscape in some ways because so much of the language around the natural world conceives of it, and you talk about this as separate from humans, we call all of these different beings around us it. And in doing so, we that language allows us to exploit or objectify, or it subtly communicates a separateness. And I think in having like that relationship you had, you call it a third parent, which is such an interesting and powerful way to describe that because you're personifying this tree. So that becomes like a relationship that you build rather than this this sort of like, oh, that, sh- that thing over there. 
it's a person, it's a being. And I think that's something that's really important that we'll definitely get into more around language as this interview goes on. But I wanted to hear more about what compelled you to write this particular book, because you've done a lot of writing, you've made it your career. And as a fellow writer, I know for myself, there's so many topics that I often think of to write about and and so many different ways in. So I'd love to hear how this concept and this lens that you took for this book came to be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I think this book was a culmination of a lot of writing that I had been doing for Mind Body Green, just um, for those who are unfamiliar, it's a health and wellness website that takes a very holistic view on health. So I focus a lot of attention on the intersection of human health and planet health. So as the sustainability editor there, and in writing stories sort of at that intersection and speaking with all these really incredible environmentalists and people who are really just making waves in that space, I found that oftentimes when I would interview them, I always like to know what first got people inspired to, to start doing work in this in this area. And, you know, a lot of them had like similar responses. A lot of them could point to a certain experience that they had outdoors in a specific landscape, maybe as a child or as an adult with their children or just at some point in their lifespan. And it really inspired them to do more to protect that place and to, you know, become more involved in, in the environmental realm. And I thought that was really interesting because I think so many of the narratives around climate action today, rightfully so, focus on the need to take action to really save our our species and to avoid climate catastrophe. But hearing these responses, it was very clear that these people are acting from a place of love and from a place of connection. So that inspired me to consider like, huh, I wonder what it would look like to put out a resource for people to help them take more action that is from like a heart led place. So that was one part of it. And then Mm -hmm. the other part was just reading a lot about the research about things like forest bathing, which I know you are super entrenched in and green space research. And I was really interested to read about these different landscapes that were being studied. And I wondered if there was research going on in all different landscapes. There are obviously so many out there that people feel connected to, whether it's, you know, me feeling connected to the ocean or, you know, people who might feel connected to the desert. So I wanted to put out a book that focused on, it's split into eight chapters and each chapter focuses on a different landscape and sort of provides activities and rituals that people can do to connect to that landscape every day. And then it provides actions that they can take to protect that landscape moving forward from that newfound hopefully connection to place. So that was really the inspiration for it. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. And, you know, as someone who I've, that resonates with me in particular, because I had a very similar experience in a, in a like a direct felt way. I think I was like, I've been searching for meaning, searching for well-being in, you know, maybe a whole, more holistic sense, like physical, mental, spiritual. And I just started to notice experientially that when I was connecting in nature, when I was gardening for a few hours, I would just feel so much better. And I was like, you know, I didn't have, I mean, actually, my background is a lot in sustainability. So I was in that world for sure. But I, I it's not like I like knew a bunch of research about it. I just knew qualitatively how I felt. And I was like, I think there's something here. And my favorite part about the way that you structured the book, well, one, I think it's very interesting that you did it by landscape. I thought that was like so interesting. I would love to hear more about that. But I loved also how you paired actions that individuals can take to create that bond and that felt sense of belonging, and then actions that individuals can take to help protect those areas. And I love that you paired the two because I think if I think about my work, my work is all about that returning to nature, that remembering, that unlearning. And I always say that I wouldn't consider myself an environmentalist or activist. I, I I don't know if I label it that, but I think I'm doing environmentalism and activism. 
because I know that no one's going to protect what they don't love. And so I just think it was brilliant the way that you paired those two because that's really where it starts. And that's also where you create sustainable activism, where you're not doing it from a place of like fear or despair or anger. And you mentioned, you know, I think there was a quote in in the book about his name was Orr. His last name was Orr. O-R-R. Or, yeah. yeah, where mm-hmm. he talks about hope. And he's like, you know, you create action, sustainable climate activism and action from a place of hope. And so anyways, yeah, I just, I think that that is really special, the way that you structured those two connected, because I think they are. (laughs) And that's what the research showed, right? You said that in the book. (laughs) Yeah, maybe we talk about landscapes, how you chose to organize everything by landscapes. So the book is organized by how many landscapes? Eight? Yeah. Eight, eight, eight landscapes. landscapes. And I thought it was so interesting that you did it that way. And at first I was like, oh, that's, I don't know. I, I just, I was like, well, I wonder why she did it that way. But then once I dived in, I realized that it is quite powerful to, almost like invite people into these different landscapes because as someone who grew up in upstate New York in the United States and now lives in California, which is a desert climate, I think at first I had, I didn't feel a connection to this landscape and it was actually quite jarring. And I felt like this homesickness for, for upstate. And, but over time, as I've like, intentionally developed that relationship with the plants and the animals, I noticed that like there's this the same feeling of love and reverence and just awe I get here than I that I did upstate, but it took time. So tell me more about like why you chose the landscapes you chose and yeah, what the approach on that. It's a good question. And I think that when I went into this, I was thinking about it from the place of, you know, I think a lot of people like you and me feel immediately connected to a certain landscape, be it a place that we grew up or maybe visited and just immediately felt a connection with. So I thought that in that sense, it would be interesting for people to learn more about that landscape that they immediately, you know, felt that connection with. But I was also just curious, I think all of nature I think it's a very, I definitely split it up in a very arbitrary way. And I totally acknowledge that, you know, you can step outside and see a grassland, but you could also see like trees and have that sort of forest experience too. So they all obviously come together in a lot of ways. But I think that each landscape that I explore, it has a really beautiful, almost like lesson to share in a way. And I think that we as people, obviously we are connected to nature, we are nature So I think we sort of hold some of the lessons of these landscapes within us as well. And, you know, I think we all have some desert in us and some ocean and if we want to get that literal. Um, So, yeah, I think that it's funny because I actually, when the book came out, my dad, my dad called me and he's like, why did you include desert? Like, I'm never going to go there. Like, or not, why did you include it? He's like, should I even read that chapter? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. I think you would, you know, really benefit from learning about it, even if it's a place you never envision yourself going, I think that there can be something to learn about the way that that place functions and consider how it might mirror the way that you function as well. So Mm -hmm. that was sort of my intention with it. It was definitely an arbitrary way to break it up in a lot of senses. But I think it was it was a nice sort of writing task, too, because it made me sort of consider like, what is it about this place that makes it unique? Like in the mountain section, I explore this feeling of awe that people might feel at the bottom or the top of a mountain, you know, rivers, I talk about how they mirror the life path. So it was just an interesting way for me to format it and to sort of organize the information in my head as well. I like it because it allows you, like you said, to feel the familiarity of the landscape, you know, but also the curiosity maybe about the landscape you don't know. And that's really what nature is about. It's full of like mystery and 
awe and wonder. I am leading my course. I have this course, Homecoming, and we're in the first week. We just kicked off our six-week program. And the first week is all about cultivating a sense of awe and wonder. And it really is. It's like every little thing can be that moment or that mystery. And I think by breaking it up by landscape, what you're inviting people to do is like discover what there is for them in a landscape like that. Maybe, you know, your dad is like, well, I I don't care about the desert. (laughs) And maybe (laughs) you tell me, I mean, he might have been like, oh, now I want to go or who knows? Maybe he just it just opened his heart to understanding that landscape a bit more, which is a lot like all of us so different coming from different places. But really, the core of our connection and thread is the same. I'm going to ask you about each of the landscapes, but I'd like to zoom out before we get into it and talk about language is so important in this space and all spaces because it creates threads of understanding. So I'm going to ask you a question about language, and you titled your book Return to Nature, and I'd love to hear why you used that language return to nature? And what what does that mean from your perspective? Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think word choice is so important in this space. And I sort of explore it a little bit in the book, just in terms of words like wilderness can feel Mm -hmm. very unwelcoming to a lot of people, I think. And they historically have been used as a means of colonial action. And by separating wilderness from humans, I think it can be very dangerous. And so the idea of a return to nature, it implies that it's a place that's always belonged to you, like you're returning to it, you're not exploring it for the first time. So I think in that sense, it can sort of subtly just get at the fact that like, anyone can have these really rich experiences. And if you want to call it nature, the outdoors or outside, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be like, a grand Yellowstone vacation, like, I think my real intention with the book was just to help people explore whatever landscape that they have access to and really make it their own and and feel that more reciprocal connection to it. And you write about how this book proposes a new definition of wellness, which I thought was interesting because, you know, I think there is a lot of dialogue lately around what is wellness, what is well-being what is commercialized wellness versus true wellness. Um, But you say it's one that's rooted in simplicity, self-awareness, and meaningful exchange with the wise and healing world all around. Can you say more about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as someone who does work in wellness and thinks about these things day in and day out, um, (laughs) I just think, yeah, over the years of, you know, reporting on sort of, ways to be healthy so many of like the real true paths I think to like feeling whole and feeling healthy and feeling good in your body are the more sustainable actions in like from an environmental perspective too so it's eating locally it's avoiding single-use plastics and just living in a way that allows you to get outside and walk around and have that connection to the land so you know, in writing this book, I was thinking about the ways that the mental health crisis that we're seeing right now really might parallel with the climate crisis. And I think the further, the more we disconnect ourselves from nature, the worse off we are as a species and also, you know, the worse off the planet is because like you put it beautifully, you know, we can't protect something that we don't love. So I think that was my definition, if that answers your question. <laughs> it really does because it it removes wellness from like a very individualized experience to one that is connected to the entire ecosystem in which we live because that actually is what wellness is. If we destroy our earth, we're actually destroying ourselves 
So it's almost like, I don't know another way you could think about wellness, but yes, we also exist in a very capitalist, patriarchal society that is constantly reminding us it is individual and it's all about you and it's all about, you know, your needs and you have to protect that. And so it's definitely not like individual health is communal health is planetary health is, and so, you know, ripples out. So I think I love that you pointed that out specifically because I think it's a really important distinction to make. And I think thinking about like Gen Z and I feel like the younger generations partially because of necessity are having to really grapple with this reality and are really thinking about what this does mean a lot more than I'm a millennial. It was called the me generation. Are you a millennial too? Yeah, I'm a millennial too. Yeah, yeah I do think that the, <laughs> the younger generation is definitely more with it than we are. And I also think like, just building off that thought, it's interesting to sort of consider it from the lens of individual climate action too, I think is something that we were really, we being the media, mm-hmm. was gung-ho about pushing for a while. And now it is making that shift more towards communal action and like syncing up with those in your community and like really building grassroots power that way. So I think that's another sort of mirror. You can't be just individually healthy for your own sake. It's more about like connecting to your place. And then if you're going to take climate action as well, it is valuable to zoom out and be less focused on yourself and more focused on the greater good. So mm-hmm. I want to get into the landscapes, each of the landscapes. And I mean, everyone should buy the book if they if they really want to dive in. But I would love as a preview to give people an overview or a glimpse into each one. And you tell me if this sounds too lofty, but I'd love for you to go through each landscape and describe one of the most interesting discoveries or research, just something that like kind of was very surprising or interesting to you that you came across. And then maybe one simple practice we can do to reconnect to each one. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. (laughs) Okay. So do you want me to prompt you? I can go through. I got the book right here. (laughs) It's okay. You you remember it. (laughs) I did write it a while ago, but not that long ago. (laughs) Can you recite me the book uh, by (laughs) heart? Probably, honestly. Okay. So chapter one is Parks and Gardens. And so this is sort of a, a nice way to just tee up this research as a whole. So I should also you know, say the book is very research heavy. And I tried to meld the science with the, the spiritual because I think that's just a sweet spot for me personally. And I think it is a nice way to invite everyone to the conversation. There are definitely people out there who like need hard science to convince them to take a certain action. But then there are also people who are just very you know, in tune with that sort of felt connection. So I wanted it to feel welcoming to both sides. So the research on this chapter was pretty interesting. So it was just kind of laying down the lay of the land, so to speak, about green space research in general. We have a real overwhelming amount of evidence, you know, right now that the closer you live to green space, so that can be a park or if you have access to trees, uh, the healthier you are, really. And There are a lot of different theories as to why this is. The one that I was really interested in for this book is just the way that it supports our mental health. Having experiences in nature tends to do things like reduce stress and all of its physical manifestations. So things like high cortisol levels, high blood pressure, it can be very helpful for that. It can also be really good for breaking ruminative thought patterns. So, you know, I know I, for one, if I'm like struggling with a problem and it just is like continuing on a loop in my head, I find that if I just get outside to walk, it can be really beneficial. I think it just takes you outside of your own head in a lot of ways. So the green space research is that really showing that, you know, living close to greenery, it's even, it's helpful for things like mortality. Like you tend to live longer if you have more access to green space, which is kind of a bummer for someone like me who lives in a city, but it doesn't have to be, you know, an expansive area as long as you're near a park or have access to, to trees, it can be it can be helpful. So I think just the power of that in itself is really incredible. And speaking to researchers about this, it's something I think a lot of us intuitively know, but to just hear that like the science is really, really, really backing this up, I think is just a nice other nudge to get outside just for the sake of your overall well being. And if you can't bring some of nature inside. Like I noticed you have a lovely plant behind you. Yeah, it was $400. So, 
I was gonna. It looks. It was it like looks the most I've ever beautiful. spent on a plan. It's like a tree. It's really beautiful. On well, you're tree. doing it for your health now. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I love. I it's love it. Worth it. So yeah, even like along those lines, you know, for this chapter, I guess one sort of interesting ritual was I interviewed a horticultural therapist who works at NYU, and you know, he sort of goes room to room to visit patients with things like houseplants and talks to them about the plants that they, you know, might feel attraction to and sources those and then brings them into their room. And he's actually done some legitimate clinical studies to show this, but those who are partaking in his program tend to have quicker recovery times during their stay than those who just do more traditional, you know, recovery. So I think the power of houseplants should not be underestimated. And, you know, if you're not a plant lover, just finding another way to bring the outdoors in can be super, super beneficial. Yeah, I love that. You could always get here. I have I have all sorts of nature ephemera around my home. It's like kind of a joke. Like everywhere there's like a pine cone, a rock, but I'm holding up a pine cone for those who can't uh, see us. I've got little pine cones everywhere and rocks. And I mean, it's so nice. <laughs> yeah, it's nice. And I think, yeah, for days where, you know, getting, you can't spend as much time outside. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's the next best thing. Okay, that's parks and gardens. Next one, my favorite, oceans. I mean, oceans are fascinating. I think that anecdotally through a lot of the, you know, questioning I've done just with my community and with my friends, it seems to be a favorite landscape for a lot of people, which I I can understand. I certainly love it too. And, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with the ways that being by the coast really evokes all five senses. The sound of the water is something that I did a lot of research on for this chapter in particular. And yeah, I'd say one conversation that stuck with me here, I was talking to a blue space researcher. So blue space being water features and then green space grasslands. And we were talking about the sound of the water. And I asked him why so many people do find it relaxing. And he said, you know, I think it really, it's so tied to memory more than maybe any other scent, just your sense of hearing a landscape and going back to a certain experience you had and he mentioned like you can be on the other sides of the world and the ocean will sound similar to you so Mm. in that sense like listening to waves can be so transportive if you do have that positive association to go back to so I think that's another important thing to keep in mind is like not everyone grew up with positive nature experiences or not everyone had access to nature as a child or you know as an adult so that's another reason I think that it's so important to like make outdoor access more accessible to everyone. It's like these experiences really build upon each other and it can be like a therapeutic tool throughout your life if you do have these outdoor memories. So I think it's really important that you mentioned the accessibility part because it's like nature is all around us. It's within us. It's ostensibly quote unquote, like free, but there's access barriers. And you talk about this in the book, but it's like, because of the way that our country is set up because of just capitalism and racism and things like that, it's like not every community has equal access to these spaces. And at the same time, disenfranchised communities are like disproportionately affected by the effects of the climate change. So I think it is important to mention that. And I think if we do have the privilege to have access and feel safe in these natural spaces, we also should think about how can we open that door up for other communities because we are all, all, (laughs) when I say all, it means all, (laughs) belonging to the natural world. And that's important. We need to like work towards that for others. Absolutely. And I think that's another really valuable reason that this research exists. You know, I think a lot of us can say like, oh, well, it seems obvious that, you know, getting outside will make us feel better. It seems obvious that going to the beach is relaxing. But I think that by really quantifying it, it, it's powerful to like actually share this data and provide it to those in power as like, look, we really need to like increase access to this, not just because it's like a nice to have, but because it's like essential for our well-being as humans. So just grateful that there are researchers out there quantifying this, even if it's something that we might innately know. 
Mm-hmm. That's that's an interesting point. I don't think I ever thought about it like that, but I think you're right. Especially I'm thinking about with policies and just money and people's donations, we have to appeal to their logical mind and like have the science to be like, this is important. <laughs> and I think you're right. That will maybe help turn the tide to use a ocean pun. So what is a practice for oceans and coasts that you found powerful? For this chapter, one of the quicker rituals, I should also mention the rituals are presented as for if you have five minutes, if you have an hour, and if you have longer, just sort of another way to break down those those barriers. A quick five minute one that was shared with me by this incredible surfer and blue space researcher named E.C. Britton. She loves to do sit spot meditations on the water, which I thought was really neat. So yeah, for, you know, a quick sort of sit spot inspired ritual, you can, if you have access to a waterfront, sit down, you know, close your eyes if you feel comfortable. And then as you gradually open them, first take in the surroundings, you know, right underneath you. So look down at the sand beneath your toes and spend a minute there, but then gradually move out and focus on a wider and wider spot until you're taking in the whole scene. And I think that this can just be a really nice way to really tune into all the senses as you're in a place and really ground in that place that has so much to offer. Love it. Love me a sit spot. Okay, next chapter three, mountains and highlands. This is, you know, as I mentioned, this is the place where I really explore the power of awe, which is a really interesting emotion. And, you know, it's the focus of a lot of positive psychology, increasing lots of positive psychology right now, just because it does seem really unique in the sense that awe is something that we feel when we're faced with a really vast and it can be physically vast or just incomprehensible in like a mental way environment. So if you're on the top of a mountain, that's a very clear example of awe. But it can also find you when you're listening to music that you find really beautiful or looking at really incredible, awe-inspiring art. And the reason that they suspect that awe is so unique is it really grounds you, it roots you in the present moment and sort of it's one of the few emotions that makes you reconsider your place in the world is what they're finding. So in that sense, it's actually been tied to things like more pro-social behavior. So after you feel you know that experience of all, you're more willing to feel like you have more time to spare, but also like you have more time and energy to give to others, which I think is so interesting. Mm. There have been a bunch of like really cool studies to to show this. I think it's an emotion a lot of us could use more of, you know, especially these days where we're doing the same things over and over. Like, Lord knows I hardly leave my apartment. Like, I think by opening ourselves up to new experiences, we do open ourselves up to awe. So I think that's really important. And again, it goes back to just, you know, being better people and being better members of our, our community. I think that's so important. And I wonder too about, I don't know if this was in your research about how whether when we're children, we experience more awe, maybe without consciously knowing what that is, because we have that beginner's mindset. It's like the natural state our mind wants to be in, and we haven't been conditioned out of it. That's just something that came to mind. I was like, I wonder if when we're kids, we're like much more connected to that naturally with like simple things. So what is a practice for this landscape? So mountains, one that I I like and I've, I've tried and it's been very valuable for me is if you are someone who's able to take a hike, it doesn't have to be, you know, a long hike, but any sort of hike up elevation for a lot of different factors, including, you know, it's sort of awe-inspiring potential, but I think it can really open you up to a new perspective in more ways than one. So the practice of just if you have a, a problem that you're considering or something you're trying to work through, journal it before you start your hike and then come back to it at the top of the peak or you know after you've you've finished and see if you see the issue any any differently I think it can it can be really you know even if it's like a 30 minute hike I think it can really do wonders for your your perspectives have you done that yeah I have (laughs) I love that did it work (laughs) yeah definitely I mean I, I yeah I had some insights that I definitely hadn't thought of at the start. I'm going to, I'm going to try that next time I feel stuck about something. 
Okay, forests and trees. So, I mean, this is such a fun one. I think that, you know, with Shirinyoku and that whole practice in Japan, it's really a wealth of, of incredible research, like truly incredible. So there's a lot to discuss here going along with, you know, a theme that's continued to come up, just our connection to the natural world and the fact that we are part of nature. I think the research on trees is just such an incredible example of that. Like the fight on sides and the sort of odors that trees emit as a means of protecting themselves from predators and, you know, from threats. There's research to show that when we breathe those in, it also, you know, fortifies and strengthens our own immune system. So it kind of does the same thing for us, which I think is such a clear, you know, epitome of just the fact that like we are nature and what we do to nature, we do to ourselves. So yeah, I think just like that feeling of taking a deep breath when you first walk into a forested area, so powerful emotionally, and you know, it might be powerful physically as well. So that's super cool. Mm-hmm. I love that research. I'm getting my forest therapy certification. And you actually interviewed my forest therapy teacher, oh, um, Manuela. Really? Oh yeah, I'm gosh, learning from Manuela. She's, she's my oh, amazing. teacher. Um, so I saw, I was reading and I was like, oh. <laughs> but it's something that I think was the inspiration behind Amos Clifford, who founded the ANFT type of forest therapy guiding that I'm getting certified in. But, um, oh man, it's so fascinating. I just, I just really love it. And I love that you also, you included some almost like forest therapy light practices in this chapter, forest therapy adjacent type experiences, which I liked. So what is a simple practice someone can do. Maybe maybe it is just going in and <laughs> sniffing, smelling mm-hmm. the trees is enough, but if there's another one. Absolutely. I mean, forest bathing, I think, is such a wonderful practice because it, you know, I've been lucky enough to go on a few guided forest walks and, you know, talk about like a sensory experience. There are some really incredible, you know, ways that guides like are able to really help people, you know, tune into that landscape, whether it's listening to like the sound that's furthest away from them or the closest. I don't know. I just, I always get a lot out of that practice, but I'd say for those who are a bit maybe shorter on time and want to connect to to forests and trees in their own community, one practice that I share is just getting to know a certain tree. Like, you know, I think we walk by trees, a lot of us, you know, during our day-to-day lives and don't necessarily notice them or notice what's sort of going on with them, how they're changing throughout the season. So I would encourage maybe people to find a tree in their area and just like, get to know it, like visit it and like make it sort of a part of your like routine to just check in on it and maybe learn about what kind of tree it is and what its sort of native habitat is. And Richard Powers, the incredible author, he calls it tree blindness. And I think Mm -hmm. so many of us are really blind blind to trees. So combating that with one tree at a time, I think can be very helpful. Just like you did when you were younger. It's interesting that you put ice and snow after the forest, because in some ways, it's almost like they feel, well, maybe not opposites, because there's ice and snow in the forest. But um, when I think of a forest, I think of maybe the forest in summer or something. Yeah. Chapter five, ice and snow. So this is a fun one to write. I'm from the Northeast and I am definitely very used to winters by now, but I wouldn't consider myself like a huge snow lover. And I'm definitely guilty of just staying inside a lot more during the winter, which is fine. But I think, you know, in the, <laughs> in the course of writing this chapter, there hasn't been a ton of research about the mental health benefits of getting out into snowy, icy landscapes in particular. But, you know, the research we do have has shown that when people take a, a walk, on a beautiful sunny day, it has the same sort of cognitive benefits as taking a walk on a icy, snowy day, as long as you're prepared for that more harsh, hard landscape. So I think that's just a beautiful reminder of like, you won't necessarily enjoy it as much, but that doesn't mean that you're not still sort of reaping those, those mental health benefits if that's something you're after. So that was sort of a nice jumping off point for this chapter. And just considering like, okay, it's still beneficial. And then what are sort of the unique aspects of like snow and ice? And I live in New York City. And I think about the city after snowfall, 
And it's really the one time that New York City is quiet. (laughs) And it's sort Mm -hmm. of just Mother Nature like silencing us. (laughs) And I think that can be so beautiful when the city's blanketed in snow. You can really hear yourself think, which is a very valuable practice in itself. So I think ice and snow, it can sort of lend itself to having a more meditative, mindful moment and really, you know, learning to embrace silence and stillness. I also used to be someone who was like, get me out of here (laughs) when it was snowy and cold. And then I met my partner who was living in rural Maine at the time. So he knows colds. And he also was like semi-homesteading. So he was very used to like structures without heat in like sub-zero temperatures. A little more extreme than I was (laughs) interested in, but... He really taught me, and you talk about it in the book, how like your enjoyment of those landscapes is really proportionate to how prepared you are for them. And it sounds so simple, but like my entire relationship to the cold changed once I got the proper clothing. And then I was like, oh, I don't need to be like suffering, you know, like I can feel warm and now enjoy it. You know, it was just such a so. I always talk to people because it's not like we're taught this. Sometimes you need to learn. Like he made me get like long underwear and, you know, and I just would wear it and I I still do. And it it has really changed. So if you feel resistant, I invite you to purchase some long underwear. (laughs) (laughs) Moral of the story. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That was definitely, I like felt, I'm like, is this too obvious? But I ended up including it. Yeah. Like you got to dress for the weather. I think it's. (laughs) I think it's life-changing as someone who's had that experience. Okay, this is my favorite chapter, again, because... I have been developing my relationship to the deserts and dry lands where I live. And someone said to me this like beautiful phrase, someone who grew up here in Cal, I'm in Southern California in Los Angeles. And I said, you know, I was mentioning that I had like a newfound love for this landscape, whereas before I kind of just saw it as dead and decaying. And she said, you've had, you found your desert eyes. That's what it's called when you can really like see the desert, which I loved. So talk to me about how we can find our desert eyes in this landscape. I love that. Yeah. I mean, I think this is another harsh landscape and, you know, it's another one that you really need to be prepared for when you get in, especially if you are someone who isn't necessarily used to it or didn't grow up in the desert. But from a research perspective, similar to ice and snow, The cognitive benefits do seem to be the same if you're in a very dry desert environment in the height of summer than if you were in a more lush green space. There's some interesting research going on at the University of Nevada to look into that. So that I think is an important thing to remember. And then desert eyes, I love that. And I think that a lot of the interviews that I did for this chapter some more ideas came up. There's this one incredible historian who I interviewed, and he was saying that he wasn't initially from the desert. And when he first moved to a desert landscape, he didn't like it, you know, he didn't feel comfortable. And it wasn't until he went out on a day with a botanist that he really changed his view of the desert and started to see it as like this alive place. So I think that desert plants in particular are like such a cool way to connect to that landscape and such an incredible lesson in resilience, like the way that they've evolved to just thrive with so little is like so powerful to me. I would encourage folks to, yeah, look out for signs of life in the desert. And, you know, there might be more than you realize. Again, going into it prepared and having plenty of water. Yeah, that's one practice that I think can be really beneficial. Maybe they could have their plant identifying app or something if you don't have the luxury of, uh, knowing a botanist in your area or when you visit the desert, you could use your plant app. And I love that. Okay. The seventh one is, do you remember? Rivers. Yes. Rivers and streams. (laughs) Yeah. Rivers are fun. I mean, 
this is another one that there isn't a ton of research necessarily on like the benefits of getting out to rivers particularly, but, you know, I think of rivers as an accumulation of a lot of different themes in the book, you know, it's, that's why I sort of presented it later in the book is, you know, you have running water, the area around rivers tends to be pretty lush. You can have maybe some trees and grass and, you know, it's sort of a place where these different themes can come together. And I think in a lot of ways, rivers, they appear sort of in our stories and in our mythology, in our history as humans. And I think in a lot of ways, they mirror the human life path. You know, rivers go through a lot of different obstacles, but they, they have to continue to flow towards their destination. They can be really quiet and calm at parts and then more you know, have more rushing white waters and others. So I think there's a lot that we can learn from rivers from a more spiritual perspective. And I think that rivers can also be a beautiful place to go to reflect, to return to a river from your past, I think is one of the rituals I provided. And to just sort of think about like maybe how that river has changed since you were last there and then consider how you've changed as well. And to make that connection, I think can be really powerful. So that's like a journaling practice too. Yeah. Or just, you know, thinking about it, but I always encourage, always encourage the journaling. Okay, and then the last environment. This one I wanted to ask you about because I was like, yeah. hmm, interesting. This one is cities and built environments. So talk to me about, that's obviously a conscious choice of you, well, I would assume <laughs> it is, <laughs> um, of you choosing to include this environment that I don't know if we would, you know, many people would consider when they think about natural spaces. So tell me more about why you chose to include it. So it was definitely a conscious choice. I totally see that the point that depending on how you define the word natural, it might not be considered a natural landscape. And I just remember that was something my editor told me during the writing process too. She asked me to change that. I don't know if I did. Uh, <laughs> but No, I like this. Why? Yeah. Tell me. <laughs> I think that if you are really going to believe the thought that humans are in nature human constructions could also be considered natural I don't know if I would necessarily take it that far but I think the point of this chapter a it was to really speak to people like myself who do live in more urban environments and maybe feel like they don't have access to anything and I wanted to ask people who are doing research in this space whether those who are living in cities could have meaningful nature experiences and like the answer was always absolutely yes like I think they really encourage people to consider how to have these experiences in their own area just as a way to protect those more like far away places. I think if we all flock to the same, you know, beautiful mountain trail every weekend because we don't feel like we can explore anything in our area, we're going to really love that landscape to death is the way it was put to me once. And that was something I really wanted to hone in on in this chapter. So yeah, with that being said, it definitely takes a bit of a conscious effort, I think, if you live in the city to have these more quiet moments in nature. But I do think that they're possible. I wrote this book during the pandemic from an apartment, so I didn't really get to do much travel to these places. And I had to consider, like, how can I connect to a desert environment in Williamsburg, Brooklyn? Yeah, it showed me the potential for powerful outdoor experiences in more built unnatural environments. Yeah. I would say too that as someone who had lived in New York City for about 10 years and then now lives in Los Angeles, like I would say being able to connect in with these smaller spaces or spaces that from maybe your perspective are not the awe-inspiring mountain or the dense forests of the Pacific Northwest or something like that are actually more transformative just from like a personal perspective, because to me, it's the simple practices that become the most profound and it's the consistent practices that become the most transformative. And so it's like, you know, we are not going to be traveling to go camping every single week, but what we may do, and and also I think I'm not an expert in this, but I do believe I've read that more and more people are are traveling to urban environments and living there. So it's like the migrations are going towards more urban spaces. So increasingly, if we do find ourselves in these places, where do we find the nature? 
And I always say, like, you can always look up at the clouds, you know, there there is a sky and or it could just be a bird that you observe or like you said, a tree or so I actually think it's really amazing that you include this chapter and it's it's very aligned with what I always talk about on this podcast, which is like you don't need to have these like epic adventure experiences to have healing and have transformation and find God, whatever you conceive of that, or find like your purpose, or it can happen. You know, one of my favorite practices that I like to do is it's called Zen Nature Walks. It's a term my partner and I made up basically, but it's like taking a walk. You know, we have a driveway here, but in New York, you could do it on the same street, but just going on a place that's like very familiar to you. And slowing down so much that you find connection with every step. And it's like doing that same walk again and again, it invites you to like see magic in the mundane. And that is where like your whole world opens up, I think. So I really like that you mentioned that. And did you share a practice for this one? No, I mean, I love the one that you just shared. That's really beautiful and sustainable, you know, like that's something you can do daily. And I think that the best practices, again, there's that sort of connection, but the practices that we can really sustain in the future, um, I think are really the ones to, to celebrate. And they also make those, you know, more far away experiences that much deeper, I think, and that much richer, and we can really have even greater appreciation for them when we are attuned to those little, those little details. Another one I'll share, maybe if someone has a bit more time that they'd like to commit to like a weekend, you know, activity in their area. But I spoke with this incredible through hiker named Liz Thomas. She's really has, has been out there, but she lives in a more urban environment now. And she shared that she likes to do what she calls urban hikes. So just sort of map out her route in a similar way that you would on, you know, a, a more natural trail. And she'll usually theme it so she can visit all of the bookstores in her area on one of the hikes. She can map it out so she walks through different parks that she's never been to in a certain area. And then just sort of make a day out of it and do the same sort of preparation of like having good sneakers, you know, having water, having a backup phone charger, just making it more of like, an escape to your own area, I think is really cool. And it just reinforces this idea that, you know, I'm so guilty of this, of just thinking like, oh, I need to get out of the city. I need to like, you know, take this this weekend trip and go somewhere else. But, you know, I think with an attuned awareness, we can really find new, beautiful things in our own backyard. So I liked that practice that she shared. That's awesome. I used to host these like mini retreats in LA and I was like, how radical to retreat in your own city. You know what I mean? Like we always think, oh, we have to go to retreat somewhere, Spain or something. But it's like, no, do it here. So I love that. It's like, take a, take a day to retreat and adventure in your own backyard. I like how you called it microdosing on nature. Yeah. I think we all could use some microdosing. Yeah, I was hesitant to use that term, honestly, because I was like, oh, I don't, I don't want to like commodify it and seem like, oh, you microdose on nature. But I think it, it was, yeah, sort of a way to, to, best way to describe what I'm, I'm trying to get at. Yeah, I think it's, it's that idea of, you know, we think like how small is too small. I think that's one of the questions I had. And it seems in your research, and you let me know, it seems that, you know, you can still have such powerful benefits just by literally the smallest little patch of grass or looking at a bird or up at the sky. Is that what you found? So real insider scoop. I don't know if I've ever shared this, but initially I wanted the book to be called Human Nature just because I think the whole point of the whole book is just to show the power that can happen when humans and nature, if you want to separate it, come together. So I think it's so much just about what you bring to the exchange and then the area you're in almost doesn't matter. So yes, I agree that it can be super, you know, super small. And of course it's going to depend, you know, on the person. And I think there's been research into this, but I don't necessarily believe that there's one 
baseline, like three hours a week or what have you to spend in nature to feel better. I think it's so dependent on the person and what you bring to the exchange. So I think that can be very liberating though. It just, it really, you can make, you can make a really beneficial experience just with, with the right sort of intention going into it. The simple can be sacred. As my friend Jen Tardiff says. Oh my gosh, I love Jen. Yeah, there we go. We already have, <laughs> we do have a lot of people in common. <laughs> but that's, yeah, that's what she says. And I think that's, I always love when that. So I'm going to read, I didn't tell you this, but I'm going to read a quick passage from your book that really stuck out to me and then ask you something about it. But it's actually in the epilogue at the end. And I just thought this summed up so perfectly your own experience. You say nature like us is full of joy and pain. In it, we see ourselves clearly. We recognize our capacity to be as forceful and domineering as the snow, as unpredictable as waves, as resolute as rivers. We are reminded of our own nuance, our own human nature. I started this project looking for a way to return to a childhood in the trees despite being an adult living in concrete. Along the way, I have found that there are more shades between green and gray than I could have possibly imagined, and they all sit outside my front door as they do within me. I look out on the city and see vibrant blues and purples, deep reds and yellows, burnt oranges. I open my window and breathe them all in, drinking the fresh air as if for the first time. I just thought that that was, I was like, oh, yes, this is the (laughs) stuff I thought it so beautifully captured the experience of kinship with nature, really, like, and reciprocity and belonging. And it's basically, I love that you end with, you know, kind of opening your window and drinking in the fresh air because it's sensory and it's felt. And that's really what is needed to have that present experience in nature. So, but I wanted to ask you, um, how did writing this book change your relationship with, I'm going to call it the more than human world, um, which is basically like the beings and the world outside of, of the human species? You know, it's, it's funny. I'm thinking about it now. And the first you know, line in my introduction is about being a child looking out onto that tree from the inside. And then I end this book also from indoors, which is like kind of ironic it does sort of encapsulate the lesson that I took away from this project, which is just that, like I said, growing up, I never felt like super outdoorsy in the sense that like my parents didn't take me camping. I didn't necessarily like take vacations to natural areas much, but, and that was almost sort of like, almost like an imposter thing. I think getting into the sustainability space, feeling like I don't have that skill set and feeling like I'm maybe not an outdoorsy quote unquote person, but you know, I write about this in the book that I think that after doing all this research and really, you know, living a lot of it out in my own life during the pandemic and just feeling like how essential it is to get outdoors for our own health. Like, I think we are outdoorsy in the sense that we all, I think I put it like we all have the capacity to be our best selves outdoors. Mm -hmm. So that was a, a nice lesson for me. And it really validated, I think, just my experience in this space of just like, you know, I don't, yeah, I don't go camping every weekend, but I still like love nature because I am nature. And I don't know. I think that was just a really valuable lesson that I needed to learn. So I'm grateful for this book for showing me that. That is so important to highlight that relationship and connection with the more than human world and yourself doesn't have to look one way to be meaningful. We're all different. We all have different past experiences. We all have different frameworks. We all have different spiritual journeys. And so allowing that to be fluid and and allowing it to be your own, I think, is what seems like this is the invitation of the book. And it seems like that's kind of where you've netted out in your own experience, which I think is amazing. The last thing I'll say, you know, over the years doing this podcast and being in this space and now guiding people to return to nature. I've talked to people who work in the parks department, for example, and are like, I need this because I'm in it, but I'm not connecting. 
And so it's, you know, it's like just because you're physically in a place doesn't mean you're present with it. And so just because you're physically in the city doesn't mean that you can't be present with the natural elements of it. So I appreciate you mentioning that. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we head into the last five questions? No, I mean, I think you just yeah encapsulated it really beautifully, too. I guess, yeah, I would just encourage people to have that personal relationship and then also let that connection drive your own action. I think in the same way that there are no two two experiences in nature are the same. I think no two environmental actions are going to be the same for everyone. So it's just a deeply personal, I think, decision to sort of find where your passions intersect with this movement. So I hope that the book can be a resource for sort of doing that inquiry because I think it's incredibly valuable. As Tara Brock, who's a Buddhist teacher, says, what's your medicine to bring to this world? Thank you for sharing your medicine, which was this writing, this book, your continued, you know, sort of dedication to this space and connecting these two worlds, the, the world of science and the world of spirituality. I think they can coexist Robin Wolkimer is the one who connects that as well. And I think they can coexist and support each other. And so thank you for that. Okay, we're going to get into the last five questions. I know you're familiar with them. I hope you've forgotten them. So then you can just fire off in the moment. But are you ready, Emma, for the last five questions? I am ready and I did forget, so it'll be Great. <laughs> off the cuff. <laughs> Great. That's that's the point. Okay, the first question, what is your favorite place in nature? My favorite place in nature is, right now it's the East River. <laughs> that's where I go to, to clear my head. What is the animal, mineral, or plant that resonates with you the most? Mm, sunflowers. What is one thing we can do right now to connect with the natural world and bring more harmony into our lives? Open up a window, breathe in the fresh air. What is the greatest lesson nature has taught you? That the world does not begin and end with me. Complete this sentence. Nature brings me joy. Thank you, Emma. It has been a joy to speak with you, and I'm just grateful that we finally connected, and I hope to continue to stay connected, and congratulations on your book. I know it's such a big deal, and I feel like it's such a special companion for me as well. Well, Thank you so much for having me. It was so fun to chat with you, and I appreciate it. Well, there you have it. Thank you for listening to my conversation with author environmentalist Emma Lowy. I hope you leave with some practical tools and practices to try when you find yourself in one of the eight natural landscapes that she talked about. I just want to share how truly thrilled I am to be back in your ears with this podcast Taking a break was definitely necessary, but I am so ready to be back bringing you these important conversations. As always, I hope you stay curious and I'll see you on the internet or on the trail. So long. You just listened to an episode of the Our Nature podcast. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review it. Thank you so much for listening. Stay curious, and I'll see you next week.